Good morning. We want to welcome everyone as we gather this morning, and we want to thank those who are tuning in online. Uh, I, I apologize for the online audience. Evidently, we were without sound the first few minutes last week. Uh, so thank you to those who, who caught it, um, and uh, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully it will be a smoother ride for you today. But uh, I almost hate to break You guys were having such good fellowship and visiting and stuff. I, I hate to uh, interrupt that, but... Uh, but I, but I guess, uh, I guess we got to get started sooner or later, right? Uh, so we had a wonderful conversation this morning in Sunday school. If you've not been part of that study, uh, I, I know uh, two weeks ago people were like, "I'm a little intimidated. It might be a little deeper." And and today it was like, I think we broke through the wall, right? It, and it seemed like everybody was really into it and and starting to see, hey, I see how the pieces are clicking and how it's relevant, and so. Uh, it's not too late to join the study. We do still have some extra books over here if you, if you haven't picked one up and haven't been part of it. Uh, but we're studying Michael Heiser's uh, book on angels. And next week we'll be starting chapter three. Uh, no promises to how far we may or may not get, right? We'll, we'll see where questions are and we'll go from there. We have worship team practice on Monday. Uh, Faith to Life study on Tuesday is going to start with verse 16 of chapter four. Uh, and uh, men's group is on chapter 2 of Romans, uh, Saturday groups on Isaiah. You know, there's no reason why you can't be part of it. We, we tried to offer many opportunities for study. We'd love to see you connect to, to one of the studies. You know, sermons are great because, you know, here's, here's the way that I've kind of de described uh, sermons. But sermons are pre-digested food, <laughs> Right? I've been chewing on the text all week long, and then I just kind of dish it out to you. Studies, you get to do some of the, the chewing and the, and the work, right? Uh, and, and as well as coming into questions, and you can ask questions as opposed to me just unloading on you what I've been working on and mulling on all week, right? So, so there's a benefit to both. Benefit to both, you know, the, the worship service and the sermon as well as engaging in a small group where you can interact at a different level. So we just we, we want to encourage you to, to connect at all levels and to, to really get the most out of your, your journey and growing in your, your biblical understanding and your faith. So with that, we'll uh, have a prayer and we'll go to the Lord and worship. Oh, gracious and loving Father, we give you uh, thanks and praise just for the way that you're growing the people in this church, uh, for the people who are tuning in online, for the way that you meet us through your word and by your spirit, uh, so that we can find uh, encouragement in this crazy thing called life, that we can experience your, your peace in the midst of uh, tumultuous seasons, right? Some, some seasons come with such great joy and others such hardship. And in the midst of it all, uh, as we turn to you in faith, we can find uh, a steady uh, right hand. We can uh, find a, a, a strong foundation for our feet to rest upon. We, we find one who's gracious and faithful to just carry us through, through the midst of life. And so we just turn our hearts to you. Uh, we pray that you would minister to us this morning. We turn our minds to you, asking that you would just instruct us. Uh, and we just uh, turn our hands to you, that you would lead us in the ways that we should go. And so, Father, we just we pray for your anointing upon uh, the service, upon uh, the season of our lives, and that you would just grow us, that we might be more faithful to your call. So be with us as we come, and we remember the prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We are talking about forgiveness today, so I thought that Psalm 51 was appropriate. Let us approach his throne with humility. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Not easy things to hear, but we come to him rejoicing for the forgiveness that we have through his son, Jesus. Would you stand and praise with me, wonderful, merciful Savior.
don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. We continue on with It Is Well With My Soul.
or I would offer one. You do not want a burning offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. We offer up those broken and contrite spirits to him because Jesus alone gives us forgiveness. the Lord God. 
seated, please. Pay attention, pay attention, children. <laughs> because we are reading from the New Testament book of Matthew today, chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. I'm reading from the ESV. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man counts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. May the Lord's blessing be on the scripture and Pastor Dan's message. I, uh, I recognize here today that I'm uh, about a week early for Valentine's Day, all right? 
but I'm going to share a joke with you that Amanda shared with me that she heard off of social media. So, so if you don't like the joke, that's where it came from. It's not original to me. The social media, not from you. <laughs> that's not a good way to start Valentine's Day, is it right? Right? So Amanda shared with me this joke off of Valentine's Day, and it was uh, this uh, young guy, he wanted to, you know, the prom's coming up, and he wants to make it a perfect date for his perfect girlfriend, right? And he wants everything to go smoothly, and just right. so he wants to make this a perfect night out, right? So, so he goes to uh, get himself a tuxedo, and of course, everybody else is experiencing prom as well, and all the schools and the community are experiencing, so there's a long line at the tux place, and he waits in this unbelievably long line for his tuxedo, and he gets in, he gets like the last tuxedo in his size. And he goes from there over to get to the limousine, right? Because he wants to treat this lady all special. I don't think I ever rented a limousine, did I? No. That's another story for another time, right? But he goes to get a limousine because he wants to make this a very special night. And he waits in this unbelievably long line for a limousine because he wants his, his lady to have a special ride. And he gets in and he gets one of the last limousines. And then he has to go get a croissant, right? So we got to have a, a, a we have to have a flower that's going to match her dress, right? He's got and there's this unbelievably long line for the corsage because all these other boys are getting corsages for their women too. They must not be married yet. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, I'm paraphrasing the joke just a little bit, right? I got to add my little tidbits. So he waits in this unbelievably long line, and he finally gets his croissant, right? So he goes and picks up his, da his date in his limousine. He gives her the croissant, and they get to the prom, and they've got another line to wait in to get into the door, right? And they're waiting in line, but they finally get in, and he turns over to his perfect date, and he says, would you like some punch? And she says, well, yes. And so he goes to the punch station, and there is no punch line. <laughs> if you don't like it, it's uh, from social media, right? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if you recognize this or not, but a joke is not any good without a punchline, right? And, and how many of us have been in the case where we've started telling a joke and then we forget the punchline, right? right? A joke is no good without the punchline, but the punchline also depends on the buildup, right? Doesn't it? The punchline, you know, if you had a joke without a punchline, no good. If you have a punchline without the buildup, no good. Now think about this as we come to our text today, right? Because a joke is no good without the punchline. Punchline depends on the buildup. Uh, we come to a couple of verses that perhaps you've heard before causes some people quite a bit of anxiety, right? Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, these verses can be a bit disconcerting uh, for some people, and you can find parallel passage in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30, a degree of overlap in Luke chapter 11, 14 through 23, uh, although Luke doesn't bring in the unforgivable sin part. We see the, the demon, we see the casting out, we see some overlap, but not the unforgivable sin. Mark throws in a bit more into his punch with, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And, you know, sometimes people take these two verses and they're like, wow, 
but they miss all the buildup. They miss all the context that they find themselves in. You know, throughout the scripture, we see God's readiness to forgive, right? We see God's readiness to forgive. So we, we look at Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, and God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, that's a pretty comforting promise, isn't it? God says, come, let us reason together. Let's deal with this problem called sin. And Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know, throughout the scriptures, we see this readiness of God to forgive. In fact, throughout scripture, we see God's readiness to forgive, and yet there are Christians who struggle with, does God forgive me? Does God forgive me? In fact, I kind of think it's uh, ironic that at times people find it easier to believe that God forgives people of sins that are worse than anything they've committed, and yet they struggle with whether or not God can forgive them. Now, incidentally, uh, I, I have read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I'm not saying that to boast, but I'm saying that to say, I've read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You know what I find in there? I find a lot of people that meet the definition of dysfunctional. <laughs> I mean, if you want dysfunction, you're going to find it there. You find all sorts, adulterers, prostitutes, murderers, adulterers, people who cover up adultery with murder. You find all sorts. I, 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 I read through these pages, and you look at the disciples, you know, I take a lot of comfort in Peter, right? Because Peter knew how to stick his foot in his mouth, right? That means there's hope for me, right? Uh, I look at the disciples and look how often they stumbled, they failed, they didn't get it, they misunderstood. You know, uh, my life might be messed up, but it's not the commit adultery covered up with murder messed up, right? The readiness of God is written and demonstrated amply throughout scripture and we're invited to come to god to receive forgiveness to to turn to him and then we stumble across a verse that speaks of an unforgivable sin and for some they begin to wonder is it possible have i what what if now the unforgivable sin uh has been interpreted in a variety of ways over the years uh, including, uh, you know, and I don't know all the history of it and stuff, but, uh, but including suicide. And I can give you the gymnastics uh, for how they talk about it as suicide. I'm not going to do that for you because, you know, I, I've read the Bible, right? I've read this passage. Now, did any of you hear anything in the passage that Roger read that said anything about suicide? But I, I remember a funeral one time. Uh, I had this lady come up to me and she said that she'd gone to a funeral of a person who had committed suicide, and the pastor literally said that we know that they are condemned to hell because they committed suicide. And I want to say, do we? Because I don't see anything in this passage that addresses suicide. Now, I recognize that some of you may have people in your life that have committed suicide, or you know people that have had people that commit suicide. If that's something that, that you are interested in, uh, I did do a sermon on that. It's called uh, Say What. It was the first one. It's on our Vimeo channel. 
uh, and uh, where I addressed it because I actually addressed it from this perspective. People were, it was a summer that I said, throw in your questions, and this was one of the questions that was asked. Uh, and so I, I spend that sermon talking about how this does not talk about suicide and, and dealing with that topic a little bit. Uh, but that's a whole sermon in itself. The point I want to make is just because a Christian or a pastor, for that matter, has an opinion doesn't mean that opinion is biblical and doesn't mean that it's supported by the biblical text. Now, there is indeed a punch in what Jesus says, right? And we need to ask ourselves, what, what is it that Jesus means as he teaches it? But we can't understand verses 31 and 32 apart from the buildup, right? You can't understand the punchline without the buildup. We have to understand the context if we want to understand what Jesus is, is driving at. So as I pointed out last week, at this point in the chronological life of Jesus, opposition and support are both growing uh, uh, toward Jesus. And at this point, what we find is a miracle that is followed by a controversy. So verse 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, if we include information from Mark's account, uh, Jesus has just come back home, come back to his hometown. Great crowd is gathered, so many that they can't even eat. Now, I know that it was crowded over here by the refreshments a little bit earlier, but it looked to me like you guys were eating just fine, okay? Uh, it, it says in Mark that there was such a great crowd that they couldn't even eat. We also learned from Mark that when Jesus' family heard, they came to seize Jesus. Isn't that interesting? One of the things that many of us may not give much thought to is, you know, Mary had all this experience with the birth narrative of Jesus, uh, but later Jesus has other brothers and sisters. You'll encounter them as you read through the scriptures, and they didn't believe in Jesus. In fact, you know, how would you like to have heard growing up, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> all right? Uh, and, and so uh, they come to seize Jesus. They think, they think Jesus is out of his mind. All this fame is kind of getting to Jesus. All this popularity, all these crowds are starting to get to him. You know, things are getting a little bit crazy. And so Mark tells us his family came to seize him, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, Jesus had a lack of family support from some of his siblings. Now, incidentally, Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus' pre-resurrection, but they did post-resurrection, which is a case for the resurrection, amongst other things, right? Now, that's completely bonus, no charge, not part of our text today, okay? Uh, but you do see a change in, in the siblings of Jesus after the resurrection. But at this point, Jesus is trying to get the 12 to recognize him for who he is. He's being mobbed by the crowds because he's kind of returning to his hometown as a hometown hero of sorts at this stage, right? Because we're hearing all the stories about Jesus, I mean, here we are, we're, we're a no, nobodies from nowhere, right, in this little place of Nazareth, right? And we have this, this guy that came up from our own hometown, and look at all these things people are saying. So he's kind of returning as a hometown hero of sorts at this stage. Rumors are abounding. Uh, when a man suffering, three afflictions is brought to him, right? It says he's blind and he's mute, and those are actually just symptoms, right, of the real cause he was demon-oppressed. So by my account, that's three, blind, mute, demon. And Matthew simply says, and Jesus healed him, and he spoke and saw. I'm like, come on, Matthew. I mean, we'd like to know a little bit more, wouldn't we? I mean, this is a pretty big deal. Man couldn't see, now he sees. Man couldn't speak, now he speaks. Man had demon oppressed, now demon's gone. I mean, can't you tell us a little bit more? I mean, was there a showdown? 
I mean, did Jesus rebuke the demon? Did Jesus spit in some mud and, you know, because he did that on one occasion? Can't we get a little bit more information? I mean, that's kind of, he healed him and he spoke in song. You would think something so remarkable would get a little more information, wouldn't you? But for Matthew, in this case, it's not the healing, but the controversy that follows that really becomes the focus. Right? We're kind of drawn to a miracle, but Matthew points us to the controversy. And so we're told that the people were amazed. Now, think, if I didn't see it, I wouldn't believe it. Even seeing it, I'm not having a hard time believing it. That's, kind of, that's what the word kind of means. Uh, amazed, I'm overwhelmed, uh, it's, it's hard to believe what I'm seeing right before my eyes. So verse 23, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now the question that they're asking uh, conveys uncertainty but possibility. Can this be? We've been waiting for a long time. Jesus is certainly demonstrating power and authority like we've not seen before. But really, can the Messiah be from Nazareth? Can the Messiah be this man that we saw grow up? And, and for that matter, we're seeing power that we can't express, and we're seeing authority that we've not witnessed before. But on the other hand, we had certain expectations of when the Messiah came. And, you know, why we can't deny what we're seeing with our eyes on the one hand, on the other hand, this isn't what we expected when the Messiah would come. Could he really be? There's a sense of uncertainty, but possibility. Now, many of you may not like to dive into politics. Some of us might like to dive into politics more than we should. I'm not going to dive into politics here for those of you who are wondering and, and for others of you who are getting excited, right? I'm not going there either. What I want you to see is they expected the political Messiah, and Jesus has been very apolitical at this point, right? Can he be? Because we're seeing him do wonderful things, but isn't the Messiah going to come like David and deliver us from Rome? At this point, I haven't seen Jesus say anything against Rome. So Jesus recognizes that there are other exorcists in his day, you know, people casting out demons, if you are familiar with the term. We see that in verse 27. But it's also readily apparent that while there might be other exorcists in the day, they're certainly not having the same impact that Jesus is. They don't have the same power. They don't have the same authority. They're not seeing the same kind of uh, uh, results, right? So, uh, for instance, if you look over at Acts chapter 19, uh, there's some, some Jews who are seeking to cast out a demon, right? And uh, it's kind of a hilarious account because uh, the Jews come in, and, they, and, and you know, Jesus has quite the reputation at that point, especially. And so the Jews come in, they say, hey, in the name of Jesus, we command you to come out of him. And, and the demons say, um, Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. Who are you? <laughs> and let's just say it didn't turn out so well for them, okay? So there were other people doing this kind of work at this time, but they don't have the same kind of power and authority that Jesus does. So they're asking, could this be? possibly the son of David. There's some things we can't explain, but other things he's not fitting what the profile that we thought he would have. Now, Joe Merrill writes, Joe Merrill's a Messianic Jew, or Jew that believes Jesus is the Messiah, right? So he writes, and I quote, it's interesting to note that right after this miracle, the people began to ask, could this be the son of David? Or in other words, could this be the Messiah? Jesus performed many miracles, 
So why did this one place him as a candidate for the position of Messiah? The answer is because it was, in fact, a messianic miracle. And all who were there, Pharisees included, knew that it was. In first century Israel, rabbis would cast out demons with a particular method. Right? You know, we all like our how-to book, right? This, <laughs> this was their YouTube channel. <laughs> how-to, right? The person who was demon-possessed would be brought before them. The rabbis would ask the name of the demon and then cast it out using that name. Here's the problem. When you had a mute demon, their method could not work because the mute demon could not speak, and so the rabbis could not cast it out. As a result, it was said that only the Messiah would have the authority to cast out a mute spirit. That is exactly what Jesus did and why the people were whispering among themselves, can he be? Uh, Joe Merrill, actually, uh, he wrote a book. Uh, actually, that's from, uh, I think the title of it was Understanding Jesus. It's a really interesting book. He says there were four particular miracles that were connected to the Messiah. And so he points out how Jesus made sure he did other miracles as well, but he makes sure to hit all, uh, all of those four. Can he be, right? He's just performed this wonderful miracle. Now, clearly a great miracle has taken place, one that has made the people marvel, even to the point of asking, could he be? Then we come to verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now, Mark indicates that the scribes have come from Jerusalem. In other words, they're there to investigate Jesus. Now, uh, Joel Merrill, in his quote, he makes the comment that the Pharisees witnessed it. Uh, actually, there's some ambiguity in the text. Perhaps they witnessed it. Actually, the way the text reads, it could be that they just heard about it and they've heard the people's response to it, right? So, so it's not clear whether they were there or whether they're just investigating after the fact. Uh, but when they heard it, heard what? The crowd's response, could he be the son of David? Now, perhaps what we should say is taking place in our text is uh, what we can call a pseudo-investigation, right? Because they're really not interested in evaluating the evidence at hand as much as they are countering with a narrative of their own. If that sounds kind of political, it's because people have done this from the beginning of time, okay? It's just part of human nature. So we have a pseudo-investigation. They have evidence before them, but rather than really investigate the evidence, they're coming up with their own narrative. Well, he only does that by the prince of demons. Now, they can't deny that a miracle took place. And so they accuse Jesus of colluding with Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, Craig Bloomberg writes, and I quote, Interestingly, this charge persisted as a common view of, Jew of Jesus among the Jews, in the early centuries of the Christian era. They did not deny the genuineness of his miracles, but ascribed his power to the devil so that he was branded a sorcerer and worthy of death. Now, we can talk about the history and meaning of the name Bezabel. In fact, if you read in another translation, you'll see Bezabub, right? We could talk about that history and meaning. Uh, I'm not going to dive into that because uh, really what we need to see is here it serves as a reference clearly and obviously to Satan. And you might say, well, you know, I thought we have to be careful about clearly and obviously. Yeah, we, we clearly need to be concerned about, you know, claims like that, except for Jesus says it in just the next couple verses, right? If you accuse me of casting out by the power of Satan, a kingdom divided. So, so we see the connection in the text, right, to Satan, to the prince of demons. The big picture is, 
We can't deny a miracle took place. So what we're going to do is we're going to associate the source of that power to Satan. So Jesus, in their view, is allegedly conspiring with Satan. Anybody see a problem here? Huh. He only does it by the power of Satan. So he's casting out demons. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving speech to the mute. He's making the lame walk. He's restoring withered hands. He's showing all sorts of compassion and healing grace. Anybody see an inconsistency here? If his power is coming from Satan, how come everything he does is anti-Satan? Which is exactly where Jesus is going to go in his argument. He's like, um, you guys need to put these pieces together a little bit better. Because nothing he's doing is connected with the purposes of Satan. In fact, quite the opposite. They're creating a narrative because they don't have any other explanation, right? So, big picture, this is what they're doing. Now, at this point, we have one event, right? We have this demon-oppressed man who's healed, and we have two interpretations. We have the interpretation of the crowd. Can this be the son of David? We have the interpretation of the Pharisees. Uh, he only does it by the prince of demons. Now, here's the point. Can both of those be true? You know, we live in, a, in strange times, don't we? We live in strange times where people want to say truth is relative. And something can be true for you and not true for me. Well, let me tell you, what's true is true. You can't change truth. And two contradictory things can't be true at the same time. This is simple logic. Maybe that's what we should teach in school is simple logic. Because you can't, you can, you can't have both true at the same time. So which is best supported by the evidence at hand? And Jesus is going to say, well, let's look at the evidence. Does anything I'm doing look satanic to you? Casting out demons, healing the blind, giving speech to the mute, restoring health, giving spiritual life, right? So Jesus lays out his defense as the miracle turned controversy becomes a teaching moment. Building up to our big punch, right? Our, our climax, verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus begins to lay out a logical case. It's not that Satan could not, but Satan would not cast out demons, right? What would be the purpose of destroying his own work? And he says it's nonsense to think that Satan would stand against Satan. And so he gets into this verse that most of us have probably heard, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand, right? And this is true when you think about the kingdom of Satan. It's also true when you think about the church, right? It's also true when you think about families. It's also true when you think about nations, right? If we become divided against ourselves, it doesn't go good for anybody, all right? So he says, this kingdom divided can't stand. Now, think about what's going on here because all of a sudden we have a much bigger picture than just one demon-oppressed man. Jesus is now highlighting that there's a conflict of kingdoms. It's not just about one individual. There's a conflict of kingdoms. You might say, Jesus has come to bind the strong man in order to plunder his kingdom. In fact, Jesus does say that in just a couple more verses, and we're going to get there. This is part of the supernatural worldview of Scripture. 
He says, there's a conflict of kingdoms that are going on here. Now, the Pharisees, they're allowing their feelings toward Jesus to cloud common sense, and so they're offering an explanation that doesn't fit with the evidence. Same can be said as we engage in Bible study, right? People will provide all sorts of interpretations of a text and explanations of a text. That does not mean that the text supports all interpretations and explanations. So we have to be careful about reading our prejudices into a text. Such, I don't know, let's say like a pastor saying, we know this man is condemned because he's committed the unpardonable sin of suicide. Right? The text doesn't support that here. So Jesus calls out the lack of support for their argument. Absurd to think Satan would destroy his own work. And oh yeah, by the way, verse 27. You know, Jesus was a master of asking questions and response, right? The questions that kind of set you up with, can't answer one way and I can't answer another. Uh, there's a phrase that came to mind that I thought I better not say in church on the camera, right? And if I cast out demons by Bezabel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Your sons could refer to Jews in general, but likely we're, we're focusing on disciples of the Pharisees. He says, now how would your argument against me not also apply to them. Why do you single me out while you're approving them? If your sons are doing the same thing that I'm doing and you give them approval for doing it, then why are you discrediting me for doing the very thing that your sons are doing, your disciples are doing? You see the, the wisdom of this question? Jesus says, who's empowering them? Now, if they say they only do it by the power of Satan, then you just condemned your own sons, your own disciples. If you say that they do it by the power of God, then they just vindicated Jesus. Jesus was a master of asking the right question at the right time. So there is one explanation to all this, and he, he's moving to that big reveal, verse 28. But if it is by the, uh, by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus affirms that his power is through the Spirit of God, now, if you're reading Luke's account, Luke says the finger of God, which is a reference to the Spirit of God. You can look at Exodus and different places like that. So Luke uses finger of God, uh, Matthew's Spirit of God, which provides evidence that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom has arrived in Jesus. And as we think about the kingdom of God, it is both a present reality as well as a future hope. So in Jesus, we begin to experience the kingdom presently. Say, for instance, a demon-oppressed man who's no longer demon-oppressed. That's the power of the kingdom, right? But we still have this future hope because there's still more to come, right? So it's a present reality as well as a future hope. The exorcism reveals the kingdom of God is here in Jesus. Now, the problem for the people is its character is different than what they expected. So it pertains to a spiritual victory over Satan, not a physical victory over Rome, right? That's where, uh, that's where they're a little confused. Can this be... Because there's some things he's doing that we can't explain otherwise, but at the same time, he's not meeting all of our expectations of the messianic profile. So then Jesus draws a picture for them of what's happening in the spiritual realm through a short parable, verse 29. Or how can you enter a strong man's house? Now, who's the strong man here? Satan, right? You guys are good. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Who's binding the strong man? Jesus. You don't usually think of Jesus and plundering together, do you? But Jesus is coming back 
to reclaim for God, right? So unless he binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And this is how Jesus is explaining what just happened with the demon-oppressed man. I'm binding the strong man, and I'm taking back what was his. He belonged to another kingdom, but the kingdom of God is here, and we're claiming him. Okay? So now if you get into Luke's account, he gives you a little bit more detail about the strong man. Uh, you'll have to read Luke's account on your own. All right? I, I'm telling you, Luke will give you... A, Matthew gives more detail overall. Luke gives more detail on the, the little parable portion here. Uh, so we see the prince of this world is guarding what is his, but Jesus says, somebody stronger has arrived. And then he tells, says, whose side are you on? Now, would you rather be on the strong man's side? Or would you rather be on the side of the man who's, who binds the strong man? Uh, let me tell you, one stronger than the other. Guess which one he is. Okay, so verse 30, he goes on. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is saying there is no neutrality toward Jesus, right? And, and we see that, that we're given the opportunity to ponder Jesus' claims. Can this be the son of David? But in the end, we're either with him or we're not, or we're against. Now Carson writes, and I quote, And this form of the statement could serve as both a rebuke to the Pharisees and a warning to the questioning crowd that failure to follow Jesus wholeheartedly is as dangerous as outright opposition. Right? Because Jesus is saying, if you're on the fence, you need to get off it. Yeah, that's why I put the... In the <laughs> Don't you guys love that picture? <laughs> you know, it hurts to be on the fence, right? It hurts to be on the fence. <laughs> All right, we better move off that one pretty soon. Right? But that's the point he's making. We could, you know, sometimes people are like, you know, I'm just going to be neutral. Jesus says, you can't be neutral. You're in one kingdom or you're in the other kingdom. There are no other options. You can't be neutral. You can't be on the fence. So this is the buildup or the context that's leading us to the punchline. The only thing is, is we need to understand this is not a joke. You're with me or you're against me. Therefore... That means it's dependent on what just happened, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So as we think about, uh, now Mark is going to add, uh, they're guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying... He has an unclean spirit. Now think about what just took place. What are the Pharisees doing? They're attributing the power of the Holy Spirit that gives evidence to Jesus being the Messiah as being from Satan. Now if you're giving, attributing the source of power of the Holy Spirit to Satan rather than as evidence to the Messiah, which it was, guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to accept Jesus. says this is the unforgivable sin if you give the power of the whole if you give the source of power the power that's pointing to jesus as evidence of the messiah to satan then you're not going to pay attention and you're not going to receive the one that he's pointing to so he says every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven that's the readiness of god to forgive except this one now blasphemy is basically extreme slander defamation but, but what I want you to see as you look through this text is the problem is not so much the words that are spoken, 
but the heart behind the words. That's why I included verses 33 through 37. Now, I'm not going to, for time's sake, I'm not going to dig into verses 33 through 37 so much, except for just to highlight what you'll see in those verses when he talks about the trees known by the fruit, right? Out of the flow of the heart come the words, right? So it's really about the heart behind the words that are spoken. Spoken. If they're slandering Jesus and the Holy Spirit, what they're doing is they're calling good, evil, and evil good, right? As, as Isaiah talked about, due to the evil in their hearts, they're not going to come and receive Jesus. Now that we have the buildup, we can't forget the punchline. What is the unforgivable sin, right? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Now, we already pointed out it's not talking about suicide. There's no basis for that in the text. Now, I'm reading through, uh, you know, I read through a variety of commentaries and different people. Some I agree with, some I disagree with, right? And some, you know, uh, so some argued that the unforgivable sin was limited to the age of miracles and hence no longer possible to commit. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, do you see any evidence of that in the text? Isn't that interesting? Just because a pastor or a scholar has an opinion doesn't make it biblical. The question is, is can they support with the Bible, right? Now, others on the other end, so, so I read some who said, well, it's limited to the age of miracles and hence no longer possible to commit. Then on the other hand, I, I read others who said, since it is against the Holy Spirit, it can only be committed by Christians. And so it has to be speaking of apostasy. Well, in that case, how can the Pharisees be in danger of committing the uh, unforgivable sin? Once again, no basis in the text. Now, I'm sure if we dug a little deeper, we can probably come up with some other interpretations. The question is, is what does the text support? The text supports attributing the power of the Spirit to the devil rather than recognizing it as evidence of Jesus' messiahship. If I don't recognize the messiahship of Jesus, guess who I'm not embracing for the forgiveness of sins? Jesus. Jesus in whom every sin is forgiven, right? When you think about the unforgivable sin, it's this willful rejection of the drawing of the Holy Spirit to recognize and embrace Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Jesus is able to forgive all the sins except the persistent rejection of him. You know, if you think about how can we be forgiven if we reject and refuse God's means of forgiveness? That's the unforgivable sin. Now, some will say the unforgivable sin is unbelief, right? Now, we're going to get just a little bit technical here, right? You know what the problem with that is? Uh, you know what all of you had before you had faith? unbelief that's where all of us were right so how can the unforgivable sin be unbelief if if we were all in a state of unbelief before we were in a state of belief right so we have to have the persistent rejection right who is it that draws us to jesus the holy spirit and what he's talking about here is a refusal, a willful rejection, a persistent rejection of all the work of the Spirit because you're giving it over to some influence other than what it is to draw you to Jesus. It's the per willful rejection, persistent willful rejection. 
So he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, right? Because there were many who spoke out against Jesus who were forgiven. Think about the Apostle Paul, who persecuted and killed Christians before coming to faith, okay? Uh, everyone begins in a place of unbelief. We, we begin in that place of unbelief. We need to come to a point of recognizing and responding to who Jesus is. Isn't it interesting that Jesus even prayed for the forgiveness of those who crucified him? You want to talk about a God who's ready to forgive any who would come to him. But if you reject the Holy Spirit that's drawing you to Jesus, if you never come to Jesus, if you refuse God's means of forgiveness, then how can you expect to be forgiven? Stagg writes, and I quote, They looked upon an obvious work of God, and they called it the work of Satan. Their problem was not one of the head, but of the heart. This is willful blindness, for which there can be no excuse. The ignorant may be informed. That's a truth that I'm very thankful of, right? That the ignorant can be informed. And the weak may be strengthened. But by willful rejection of God's spirit, one denies himself his only help toward repentance and faith. Nobody comes to the Father except the Spirit draw them. And if we reject the drawing of the Spirit, we've committed the unforgivable sin. So Jesus calls us to a decision for him, right? Because he says, you're with me or you're against me. We're either in the kingdom of Satan, needing to be forgiven and freed, or we've entered the kingdom of God as the Spirit of God drew us to the Son of God. So the tree, its fruit, the words spoken amount to an expression of our fundamental commitments, right? You're either with me or you're against me. Have you recognized Jesus for who he is? And if so, how now will you live for him as one who's been forgiven, as one who's been brought out of the kingdom of Satan to now live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? What I can assure you of, if, if you're a believer in Christ, you've not committed the unforgivable sin. So don't worry about it. I've also heard people say, if you're worried about it, then you haven't committed it, right? But if you've rejected coming to him, right? God gives us so much time, right? The, the, crowd, the, the crowd's asking, can he be the one, right? At this point, they're in a point of unbelief. They don't know. The question is, is will we come from that place of unbelief to a place of belief? Because we're either with him or we're against him, and there's forgiveness in no one else except for the name of Jesus. Amen. In your bulletin, you have a communication card, and uh, I invite you to uh, think about how God might be speaking to your heart this morning, and then we invite you to throw that into the, uh, the offering basket. You know, you guys, uh, you guys are, are really uh, privileged, right? Because I'll tell you, uh, these sermons are always shorter when I go over them in my study at home, right? And you just excite me. So they always get longer when, when you're here. So so, so, so so some of you are thinking uh, privileged, cursed. I'm not sure, right? right? Two different interpretations, some, same scenario. Uh, actually, one of the reasons I preach from an outline is I want to give room for God to work in the midst of the delivery as well as the work, right? The work of putting it together as well as delivering it. And uh, an outline doesn't keep me tied to, the, tied to the script quite the same way. You know, if you're coming to the Lord's table because you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and you have received him as your Savior and Lord, 
then by definition, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. His blood covers us from all sin except the sin of rejecting him. So in God's holiness, sin had to be dealt with. And in his wisdom and love, he has dealt with it. Even to the point of a thief on the cross who cries out to Jesus at the very last moment in his dying breast. And he says, uh, Jesus, remember me. And what does Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Such is God's readiness to forgive those who turn to him through Jesus. Now, with that said, we should also note there's always hope until our dying breath, isn't there? Until our dying breath, we have the opportunity to turn to him. So may we recognize and receive Jesus for who he is and what he's done, extending to us the fullness of forgiveness through his death and resurrection that we may now live for him which is in part reflected through our stewardship as we recognize that, that, we are, uh, that we are in all that we have, that we belong to him. In fact, uh, you might remember where, when Paul writes, we've been bought with a price, right? Uh, Jesus bound the strong man, right? We see it in our text today, but ultimately Jesus bound him at uh, great cost to himself. It was through his death and resurrection that Paul writes, the spirits and the principalities, the powers, authorities were disarmed right? Through what he did for us through his death and his resurrection. So may we remember that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. Oh, gracious and loving Father, we thank you that as we, uh, as we read through the pages of Scripture, it's not that hard to find ourselves there. Uh, we see all sorts of people and all sorts of dysfunction and sin and failure and mistakes. And Lord, if we're completely honest, uh, we're all a little bit dysfunctional. Uh, we certainly have all made mistakes and failed along the way. And so we, we thank you that we have a, a testament to your readiness to forgive any who would come to you through the means that you've given for forgiveness. Help us to appreciate the gift that you've given us through Christ and to truly seek now to live for him who died for us as we come to this table in his name. Amen. <laughs>
thankful that his mercy is more so that's what we're going to close with today would you stand as you are able his mercy is more
I could share what I wrote here, but I think what I'll just say is our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Go forth with his mercy and in his grace and by the power he gives you to live a new life for him and for his glory. Amen. Amen.